The question this afternoon we're going to look at is uh, nature or nurture? Why do people do bad things? Why is it? Is it the way that people are born? Is it how we are intrinsically inside us? Or is it just because of what happens to us in life, the way we're brought up, the things that people may uh, do to us? Uh, I was chatting to a a head teacher in a school a few months ago, and she was saying um, one of her staff had gone off to do a a course on uh, philosophy for children. I think they were calling it P4C or something along those lines. And she said that the teacher had come back and they'd had a staff meeting to uh, everyone collectively to learn about this. And she said, I wish you could have been there. She said, you, you'd have loved it because we tackled the question uh, amongst the teachers, nature or nurture, why do people do bad things? And so I said, hang on a minute, let me just take out my notepad. I'll just write that down because I can use that for a, a big question in, in the future. But it's, it, it's there, something that people often want to, to think about or to talk about. And it isn't, uh, it isn't an am- academic question, is it? It's not just one that's highfalutin philosophy where... You hear it and you think, they can argue about it if they like, but it just hasn't got anything uh, to do with me. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? That's the kind of stereotypical uh, question that people ask in philosophic terms. And you think, I don't want to know. That's of no interest to me. But why do people do bad things? That does interest us. That does make an impact on us because, well, for two reasons, I suppose. Uh, One is that people do bad things to us. If you've never been the victim of... Uh, someone doing bad, uh, speaking bad against you, telling a lie about you perhaps, or, or saying an unkind thing, or just, just engineering a certain situation, maybe at work or college or whatever, where, where they look better and you look worse. If you've never experienced any of that, then you're probably fairly, uh, fairly unique. You're either unique or you're not unique, aren't you? But fairly unique, I suppose. Uh, we all know what it's like to experience bad against us. But then we also know the other side of that coin, what it means what it feels like to do bad to others. Why do we do that? Why do we push ourselves forward? Why do we engineer things so that we look better, others don't look so good? Why do we harbor bitterness? Why do we have jealousies and ambitions? Is it just because of how we're born? Is it just because of how we may have been brought up? Well, nature or nurture, let's take the second of those to begin with. Uh, nurture can be used for tremendous good, can't it? And, and all of us would, uh, would know that. There have been people in our lives who have affected us in, in a really powerful and helpful way. When we were on holiday recently, I, I read a, uh, a biography, autobiography of uh, the guy who piloted the plane that landed on the Hudson River. Do you remember that? Just a, a year, or, year and a half ago or so, January uh, 2009, Chesley Sully Sullenberger. Sully is his nickname because his surname is Sullenberger. Uh, was a jet fighter at, uh, at one time in his career, but then was piloting commercial airlines. And uh, the book is, is his story of his life, really, and the, especially how it's centered on the flight 1549 and their, their landing on the, on the Hudson River. But one of the interesting things in the book is the way that he speaks about again and again and again the people uh, who had an impact on him, that the man who first allowed him to go up in his crop-dusting twin motored plane or whatever it might have been, uh, and the impact he had on him, teaching him good ways of of flying, the kinds of uh, checks that you have to do and so on, and making sure that's all part of your routine, speaking about his mum and his dad, and not saying that they had an, an infallibly good impact on him, uh, later on in his life story, you, you, you find out that his dad, in very later years, got a diagnosis from the doctor about something, came home and went to his room, and then his, his mother just heard a muffled sound, went in, and he'd, he'd shot himself, taken his own life. 
and that's now had a, a negative impact upon him. But he remembers the good things his dad had done. Uh, and we can multiply that in our own lives, can't we? We're, we're, we're nurtured. Things happen to us. People engage with us. And you say, I'm, I'm, I'm really so glad to have known that person. So pleased to, to have them within my life because I, I feel better through knowing them. And I can see the things I've learned and things I've taken to heart uh, and so forth that, that, that have come about because of uh, the way that we're able to uh, interact one with another. But nurture as well, we know it can have a really negative impact upon us. Maybe you know the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Those who have been hurt often end up hurting others as well. Uh, It's the case with with, with many who find themselves engaging in all sorts of activity that's really harmful, that when you dig into their lives, they've been the victims of things that have been really harmful uh, towards them. Nurture can have uh, a real impact upon us for, uh, for harm and for bad. Uh, put someone in a kind of situation where uh, the, the, the moral standard in the situation is very low and uh, that there may be a callousness there and that, that breeds a callousness amongst others as well. Uh, I've been in prison twice in my life. I've visited prison twice in my life. Um, uh, once was to see a relative who as a young man had uh, been very foolish and was in an open prison not far from where we lived so we went as a family to, to see him. But on another occasion, uh, after I'd become a minister, I went with a, a man uh, who engaged in regular prison visiting in the, in the town where we lived, uh, went to a nearby prison with him, and we, we spent most of that afternoon talking to uh, a man who was in there who'd been convicted uh, of sexual abuse of young children within his own family. Uh, and he was open to talk to us, but the, the whole conversation was one of justification of his own position and how it was what others had done to him and how others had had let life be the way it was that ended up in him doing the things that he'd done. Uh, There wasn't a a shred of taking responsibility uh, for himself uh, of the situation. There was no denial uh, of what had taken place, but there was uh, effectively what he was saying, it's, it's, it's all about nurture. What's happened to me in my life? how people have acted towards me, the things they've done, the way they let certain situations develop. It wasn't me. It wasn't my responsibility. But we have to ask the question, don't we? Is that really how it is? That's, that's a very extreme case. But is that how it is? When, when we think about ourselves, is it just that, well, we do certain things because the certain kind of things have been done to us as well? We, we, we grew up in a very difficult environment, uh, where, where money was very scarce and, 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 and life was very difficult, and that's why now I do certain things. A lot of social uh, policy, in some ways, is based around that kind of thought, isn't it? You, you need to change conditions because that will affect what people do uh, later. Well, that, that, that's certainly true to an extent, but is it, the, is it the whole truth? Is it purely nurture, or is there nature involved as well, how we're, how we're born and, 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 and how we are as people? I think it's generally recognized that in terms of nature, there are biological or psychological factors that can lead us to engage in damaging behavior. The law recognizes that as well, doesn't it? People can be convicted of a certain crime, but, but, the, but they recognize there is diminished responsibility in that situation uh, because of certain factors, health factors or uh, psychological issues that may be uh, present there. But when all is said and done, when all that's taken into account, 
wouldn't we all want to say at the end of the day no, that there is an essential human responsibility which centers upon the fact that we have, we have human will. We have the, the opportunity to make choices uh, and decisions. And doesn't our conscience also agree with that? If we weren't responsible, that then there wouldn't be that answering sense of, of conscience about uh, the wrong things that we do. Is it nature? Is it nurture? We certainly know nurture is a, a big part of the issue. But the Bible suggests to us, and I, I want to say to you, our own experience and, and our own thinking through this would also bear out that, that, that it's a question of nature as well. How we're born into this world, the kind of people that we are. There's something, not just outsiders, that, that puts us into certain positions where the heat is on and you make a bad choice, but, but that there is something else within us. And the problem is not just out there. The problem is also in here. It's, it's not an either or. It's a both and. Nature and nurture. I want to take that in a, in a particular direction in a moment. But just to pick up one question that might be in uh, someone's mind this afternoon. Someone might want to ask about, well, that's all well and good if you're just talking about small issues. But what about very profound evil? Where, where does that come from? Is that nature? Is that nurture? And maybe they would want to think, well, perhaps that's just nurture, because if we're saying that's nature, and we all share a common human nature, then if one person is capable of very profound evil, it says something quite, quite concerning about me as well, doesn't it? Where does very profound evil come from? I just want to say two things on this, and not to develop the talk in this direction, but if you want to at the end, by all means, ask questions by either putting your hand up or come and see me at the door uh, if you want to take this particular uh, topic a little bit further, but why do people do very profound acts of evil? Two thoughts that uh, spring to mind on that. The first is this. Uh, profound evil seldom happens in just one moment. That there is a slippery slope process uh, involved in, in most of those situations. The Bible speaks of, of people's consciences being, being seared. Uh, and we know what that's like, don't we, in a, in a small way, that you can become desensitized to something. This is not a moral issue I'm going to share with you now, but I think the same uh, process uh, can go on in, in, in moral ways in our lives. Uh, we, we were in Switzerland for our holiday just a few weeks ago, and uh, we went on 13. We should have gone on 14, but we decided we'd hop off and do a bit of a walk. Uh, 13 cable cars. Uh, I, I have not got a head for heights, and uh, have been on a plane in recent years and found it an absolutely terrifying experience. And the cable cars in Switzerland, the technology must be marvelous. Uh, and, and the civil engineering skills getting these things in place because they are almost perpendicular. It's, it's ridiculous. One place we drove to, uh, and as we were driving down, looking up, thinking, I, uh, I cannot, cannot, and will not go up that. It is too sheer. Well, thankfully, it was just the service one. So the poor guys who uh, have to take up the tea and coffee to the cafe at the top, they've got to use that one. Ours was, was slightly less uh, steep. But it was a really scary experience, I can tell you. But by the end of the ones that we were, we were taking, that we had planned to take, we took it across two different days, uh, I was beginning to enjoy the experience of actually looking at what, perhaps I should be more careful with my language, I was beginning to tolerate quite happily the experience of looking out and seeing the ground further down. My stomach was no longer uh, going into cramps and the sweats and the so on and so forth because the repeated trips were, were desensitizing me, I guess, to, to, to my fears or maybe 
I don't know what the right term is, but anyway, but it was, it was working. The more you do it, the easier you find it. Isn't that true with doing wrong as well? The more you do it, the easier you find it. There is a slippery slope. Our conscience can get dulled. One lie becomes more, becomes a whole pattern of deceit in a person's life. And you didn't start off with that great big charade in place. It began only in a small way. Just want to justify something in a particular way. Don't want to lose face. And so you start building. You never think you're going to build a huge construct. But that's where it goes. Where does profound evil come from? There is a slippery slope. The second thing as well, and I think Paul has done a talk on this on a Sunday afternoon, so I won't particularly develop this one. But we've got to recognize that the Bible teaches that in this world, in this universe, there are powers of evil at work that encourage people to take that slippery slope further and further downward. You find it in the life of a a very famous uh, person in the New Testament, the life of Judas Iscariot. Judas, the son of Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, betrays him with a kiss. He was one of the the inner circle, one of the 12 disciples. One, no doubt, who in the beginning had thought Jesus is, is the top man. But little by little seems to have been turned against him. Maybe he was wanting violent revolution and he sees Jesus not doing that. And so slowly becomes disenamored with him. And it ends up with him being so greedy, wants to take the money and hand Jesus over to the authorities. The Bible says that's not just his nature leading him down a slippery slope, but that the devil was also involved in that. Nature or nurture, is it one or the other? Experience, bearing out what the Bible tells us, suggests to us it's both. It's how we are, and it's what happens to us in the the context of our lives in this world. Now, we said earlier, it's not an academic discussion. It's, It's not just about something that doesn't impact us. Wrong is done to us, and we do wrong to others. Not just because of external factors, but because of something deep within us. But that should raise a question in our minds that I want to suggest to you this afternoon. Have we got any grounds for hope? Is there any possibility that people can change, that we can change, that I can change? Or are we just locked into that cycle that says, you're born in a certain way, and inevitably certain things will be done to you in this life, and that just means you've got to get used to living with with low expectations of yourselves and others, and just learn to accept the fact that, that bad things happen, and maybe they're not so bad after all, and you just have to flatten things out somewhat. Is there hope for change? If you check out the, uh, the self-help section in, uh, I was going to say Borders, but you can't go to Borders anymore, can you? Well, you can go there, but you can't go in and, uh, and buy books. The building that they were in is still there. But go to Waterstones or WH Smith. Go online to, to Amazon and look out their self-help section. I wish I was really good at writing because you, you just make a bundle these days on, on self-help books if you've got certain ideas in your mind that you can share with people. They seem to sell by the boatload. How can I help myself be a different person where you can go and get a life coach, help you straighten out your thinking? Uh, These books, maybe they help you in a certain way. Uh, Just picking up some of the advice that I've seen uh, recently. Um, People work better in rooms that smell nice. Did you realize that? Apparently that's the case. So we need to get some flowers in here and some some stuff to plug in the wall. You know, those little um, air freshener type stuff. People work better in rooms that smell good. Here's an article saying nine ways to deal with negative people. 
if you want that, I'll point you to the, the website uh, later. It's from Stepcase Life Hack, apparently. But uh, you, you, you can get that. How do I change my... People are so negative towards me. People are negative in this work situation. How can we change it? How can we begin to change them? Nine steps, nine ways to handle negative people. Six proven ways to make new habits stick. You want to get up early. You want to exercise. You want to lose weight. How can you get into the habit? Here are six proven ways to help that stick. And you're changing. Little by little, you're changing. But those aren't the changes that you really want, are they? Well, you, you may want them. You may want to be fitter. You may want to be uh, leaner, or whatever the situation might be. But, but the change we really need and that we would really want, I want to suggest to you, is something deeper than that. Can we fundamentally change and become different? If we're saddled with a human nature that seems to drag us inexorably towards wrong, wrong thinking, wrong doing, wrong speaking, if we're unavoidably in a world where the context of life often makes a negative impact upon us, what chance have we got? Is it possible for people to change? In one of the Psalms in the Old Testament, David, who wrote it, says a very interesting thing at the end. He's been looking at the sky and thinking about how the creation, how the, the sun and the stars speak to us, uh, about the God who is there in, in various ways. And then he reflects on, on God's involvement with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. This is what he says at the end of that psalm. Reflecting on himself in the light of God, he says, Forgive my hidden faults and keep me from willful sins. People had affected him in a negative way. Nurture may not have been everything that you would have wanted it to have been. Ongoing nurture through life. But he's willing there to say, but when I look at my life, I know two things about me. I slip so easily into hidden sins. Doesn't even know necessarily that he's doing those things that are wrong. Certain patterns of thinking or of behaving that haven't been addressed, that haven't really come to his mind. Hidden faults. He's not saying things that he knows he's done wrong, he's hiding from others. It's things that are hidden from himself. He doesn't know the full truth about the wrong that he does. Forgive my hidden faults and keep me from willful sins. He's saying there, I know there are times when I know that it is wrong and I know that it is hurtful and I know that it, is, it brings guilt on me, but there are times when I choose to say that or do that or think that stubbornly willfully and that's an expression of, of of a nature which has been developed through nurture which is wrong and needs addressing what's he doing at that point he's he's acknowledging that's the case with him but he's asking god to help him he's asking god to change him can we be changed is there any way that that, that can happen to us just a couple of minutes, I want to suggest three things that you might find helpful to think about this afternoon or, or to chat with me about uh, at the end of our time together. Three things about Jesus that the Bible speaks to us. Uh, and just very simply and straightforwardly, they're these. First of all, in Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, we discover a God who has entered human experience, came as a real human being. The Bible tells us he faced, he experienced temptation. Maybe you know about that. Jesus in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. And at the end of that time, the devil comes to him. The tempter comes to him and tempts him in three ways. 
towards distrusting God and, and turning against him and turning towards the devil himself. Some people, when they think of Jesus being tempted, think, well, it was all right for him because, you know, if, if he is God, then temptation, it's like he's, it's like he's Teflon. It's got no hold of, uh, upon him and so forth. But I don't think that that, that was the case in, in, uh, in this sense, that, that, that Jesus comes into this world and the Bible tells us that he did suffer and, and he did wrestle. It's not saying he nearly gave in, that where we've got a, a, a nature that is damaged, that he had a half-damaged nature. It doesn't say that. But it does say that the temptations he faced were real, a real human being. That the, the, the accounts, we won't go into them now, but they say at the end of those 40 days, Jesus was hungry. If you don't know the story, that the first temptation that Satan brings to him is this. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. We're told Jesus was hungry so that in part we understand that was very cunning. And in a sense, if you want to take Satan's side, that was the right place to go for straight away. Go for the weakest spot. He is so hungry, he will want to eat 40 days fasting. Get him at his weakest point. Was it easy for Jesus to say to him, people don't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God? Did his stomach and his whole physical frame not react when, when Satan speaks about turning bread, turning stones into bread? He would have. He engaged. No, he, he understands human experience. He suffered. He wrestled. He offered loud cries to God, we're told. And yet, he did no wrong. Jesus faced temptation, did no wrong. God has come and experienced what it means to live as a human being in this world didn't give in, didn't give way. Some will look at that and say, but that just mocks me. It makes a mockery of my own struggles. It's like God is saying, well, well, I can do it and you can't. It isn't that at all. It is intended to breed within us a real sense of hope. Our broken experience has been engaged by God himself and he has come through untainted and untarnished and he's done it not to prove a point to us, not to distance us from him, but to say to us and to show to us he's come into this world to, to, to handle the problem. And here is one who can be a, a true hero, if you like, in terms of our, our, our thinking and worship, one who is not fallen. There is hope. It's got to be grounded, not in a scheme of thinking, but in this man, Jesus, the Son of God, who has walked through this world where we walk, faced the kind of struggles we face, and was not pulled under and sucked down. Second thing I want to say, and I'm just throwing these out for things, as things for you to consider, and uh, they, they, each of them open up a whole uh, bundle of stuff, but just to leave it with you to think about this afternoon. The second thing is this, that in Jesus, not only do we discover a God who has entered human experience and faces temptation and doesn't give way, but also we discover in Jesus the power of a clean conscience. The power of a clean conscience. Not his clean conscience. But the fact that Jesus can cleanse our consciences. And what that then can release into our lives. He died, the Bible tells us, in our place. Because of that, as we put our trust in him, God is able to forgive us 
our sins. And the Bible speaks about that as cleansing our conscience. And when we embrace that, it unleashes a new power within us for good. It enables us to start living a different life. I want to read you a, a really old paragraph. You'll see as soon as I read it, it's, it sounds really old. But just, I'll read it and then explain it a little bit to leave it with you to, to think about. Someone years ago, his name was William Remain, he, he wrote this. He said, no sin can be crucified either in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in conscience, in conscience because there will be a lack of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. If it's not mortified in its guilt, it can't be subdued in its power. Right, that's the kind of thing you want on a piece of paper to take away and sort of read a hundred times to try and get what the guy is saying. But let me just try and explain it. He says, you cannot take on that the wrong that you discover within you, unless first you know your conscience wiped clean and you feel the reality of that. He says, because if, if, it's, if you don't know it's been pardoned, that there won't be the strength that comes from Jesus when you put your trust in him. If, you don't, if its guilt isn't killed, you can't subdue its power. You can't force it under. You can't say uh, to that thing in your life, you're never going to do that again. You can't bring yourself under control. But when there is a clean conscience, the Bible tells us that that, that unleashes the power of Jesus, enabling us to live a new and a different life. And many people struggle on this. It's a, a big question designed to try and help people begin to come to terms with the Bible. Let me just take a slight digression and say, if you're a Christian this afternoon and you know that you're struggling with guilt as well, then, 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 then please do come and have a chat about this because this, this is such an important point. But when Jesus lets us know, when we, when we discover that our conscience can be clean because his death wipes away all our sin, receiving that, really believing that, unleashes his power to turn away from what's wrong in our lives. The third thing I want to close, in a sense, with, with, with this one is taking Jesus again and saying, in him we see one who has entered human experience, has not been overcome. In Jesus we see that his death, when we receive the, the, the reality of it, gives us new power for new living. But in Jesus we also discover a God who shares the power of his sin-conquering life with those who are willing to commit themselves to him in humble trust. The Bible speaks about the resurrection power of Jesus becoming uh, evident in the lives of those who trust him. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is now dwelling in the person, living in the person, because God is living in that person, who has put their trust in Jesus. Uh, and, and when you read the Bible, reading the New Testament, and you come across statements that say things like, live a new life. You might think that's God saying, come on, you've got to try harder and you've got to just sort of stir yourself up. It's like you've got to find resources from somewhere within you to live a new life and I might be pleased with you at the end of the day. That's, that's completely wrong. That isn't what those verses are saying to us. What you find is that just before those verses or in the midst of those, the writer will be saying something like this. Do you know what? Jesus died for you. So that by trusting him, you're made right with God. And God comes to live within you. There's a new power at work in you. Your conscience is made clean. The power that raised him from the dead is now within you. And it's going to enable you to live a new life. Therefore, get on and live 
that new life. It's saying because of what God has done, because this is the new reality, live in that new reality. Everything has changed. So live in the light of those changes. It's not saying you've got to change yourself and then come back to God. It's saying when you put your trust in Jesus, he does something in you so profound that God can now say to you, live that new life. And you begin to discover there is power there to live that new life. Is it nature or nurture? It's both. Experience bears that out for us, doesn't it? The Bible declares that very plainly to us. It really does matter. We really do need to change. Where can we go for real change? Self-help books might help us in, in one way or another to change some of the externals, but we need changing at the core of our being. God can do that for you. The God who came personally into this world, who died on a cross for all our wrongdoing, and who rose in great power so that we also with him might live a new life. So just a summary of what we're trying to say this afternoon.